You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to that passage, Psalm 68. And where the last time we took communion, we looked at the first 27 verses. We're going to look from verse 28 to the end. Uh, and I want to begin really by, uh, I'll read them as we, as we go through them. But I want to begin by uh, mentioning a couple of people in the congregation who are not here. At least I think they're not here. So I don't embarrass them. First is Sinclair. He's got a new book out. And I, I'll, I have to confess this. That he gave it to me and I was so glad. I love Sinclair's writing. Absolutely love it. But it was a book about something called the Marrow Controversy. Which is a 19, sorry, an 18th century Scottish Presbyterian theological squabble. And I thought, thank you Sinclair, that's wonderful. But it sounds as dry as dust. Now I know Sinclair never writes anything that's dry. So honestly, if it hadn't been written by him, I probably wouldn't have touched it. But I started reading it this week, and I'm just completely blown away. Apart from Calvin's Institutes, it's probably the best theological book I've ever read. And actually, the title is The Whole Christ. And for me, it's just a wonderful thing to see how, how what we think about God and Jesus is so fundamental to who we are and our own well-being, and what you... Whatever problem and issue you have here this morning, we're going to talk about Christ. And I hope that you'll see that Christ is the answer to what you need. I also want to speak about somebody else, Elizabeth, who wrote me a lovely letter. And she said I could share this um, about just how God's working in her life. And it's lovely to hear testimony of that. And part of it says this, I want to share how I'm beginning to see the might and majesty of Jesus as never before. I've longed for this all my life. For those of you who don't know Elizabeth, she's one of our more mature members. Um, I've longed for this all my life. The first part of Colossians vibrates and pulsates as never before. Why has it taken so very long? Maybe a benefit of old age. I'm now beginning to understand why he is your magnificent obsession and of so many others. Now he lives in a wonderful new way. What a debt I owe to St. Pete's. The Bible is coming alive. I thought I loved it, but this is new. Praise him. Well, when you have an old, experienced Christian speaking like that, you know that God is at work, as much as if someone's newly converted. And I hope that uh, you will get that as well. My experience in reading Sinclair's book was to get a fresh view of Jesus, and I hope that you will as well. In Ephesians 4, Paul quotes the part of this psalm when he says, this is why it says, that each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's a wonderful thing, to be united in Christ, to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And 
God has given spirit-anointed leaders who proclaim his spirit-filled word so that that may happen. Acts 2.33, Peter says, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. You see, the thing about the word of God and the thing about the church of God and the people of God should be this, that they always point us to Jesus Christ. Legalism tells us what we should do. Liberalism tells us what we can do or what God couldn't do. Biblical Christianity tells us about what Christ has done. And because of that, our knowledge of who God is. And that is, whatever your circumstances, that is your greatest need. Now, there was an interesting, the thing that gripped me most in Sinclair's book was uh, where he spoke about being a Christian and about how we describe. And it's very interesting that in the New Testament, virtually nobody describes themselves as a Christian. They were called Christians as a nickname, like you get called Bible basher at school. But the self-identification was never, I am a Christian, which is interesting. And I, I, I kind of knew that, but I hadn't really thought about it. And Sinclair says that if you look through it, the identification is always this, I am in Christ. Christian's like a label. It can become an ethnic label. It can be a political label. It can be a religious label. But who are you? I am in Christ. And that phrase is used, I think, over 200 times in the New Testament. Calvin says they have no reason to complain at their lot so long as they have union with God, the only and sufficient source of their happiness. Union with God. What an incredible claim. And yet when we take communion... That is what we are saying, that we have union with God. So let's look through this psalm at what some of, those, some, what some of that means. Um, I'll read, first of all, verse... Uh, where am I looking at? Oh, we're looking at verse eight, eight, 19. I'm going to start at verse 19, actually. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. And there you stop. Because there, you need to memorize that verse... And there you need to realize this is so different from religion. This is so different from what people understand. What do we mean? In Isaiah 46, we've been looking through Isaiah. And in Isaiah 46, we already uh, discussed this uh, a few weeks ago. Bell bows down, it says. Nebo steeps low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The, image, the images that are carried about are burdensome. A burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Now what God is doing there is he's saying to his people, you've been taken over by this people and they have a religion and this is their religion. And for those of you who've got good memories, good. Those of you who don't, which is most of you, and those who weren't here, uh, let me just say that in that passage, it's talking about how in what is now modern day Iraq, that Bel and Nebo, their gods, had to be carried 15 to 20 miles with this enormous procession, and it really weighed the people down. 
And what Isaiah is doing is contrasting that with what God does for his people. Because he goes on, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he, I am he who will sustain you, I have made you, I will carry you, I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. We have children, and they're very little, and you carry them. But you're not carrying them when they're 10 years old, or 15 years old, or 50 years old. And that's the difference. God says, I will carry you, even to your old age. I will carry you. There's a a burden. We are burdened with so many things. Some of us are burdened with illness. Some of us are burdened with the consequences of our own sin. Some of us are burdened with fears. Some of us, we just don't know where to go. We don't know what's happening. We don't know what's going on. And worst of all, we get burdened with religion when we come and we hear about Jesus, but we hear about it in such a way that all that happens is an extra load is placed upon us. We should be doing this. We should be doing that. We're not worthy. And God says, no, I will carry you. I daily bear your burdens. That's why we go every day, by the way, and daily cast our burdens upon him. And it's almost like you're going to be saying, Lord, it's me again. And you've heard this a million times before. And it's the same old thing. And I've got the same old burden. Please take it. And he never says no. Never. It's an extraordinary, for me, it's an extraordinary image. Just I remember I had a friend who sang this song. I've never heard it being sung anywhere else, but the words made such an impression they've been stuck in my mind and heart. Is your burden heavy as you bear it on your own? Are you growing weary as you struggle on your own? Reach out to Jesus. He's reaching out to you. He is always there, hearing every prayer, faithful and true, always by your side. Do we really really, really believe that. And sometimes, you know, there's a disease that gets into us. There's a disease that gets into us, even as Christians, which takes us away from the sufficiency and the fullness of Christ and causes us to look at ourselves to do things. But God daily bears our burdens. Let's go on. Verse 20. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Now, the interesting thing about this, and um, you can check with Will if you think, I'm not sure David's got his Hebrew right. I rely on people like Will for that. I, I, I confess I can't read Hebrew. I just read the commentaries and what it says about Hebrew. But the Hebrew here has this notion of, to the sovereign Lord belong the exits belonging to death. And that's a really interesting and wonderful idea. The God who saves is plural. It's, it's, a, it's, it, it's like saves in all circumstances. And what's being said here is that there's death. And it's a room, if you like, and you can't get out of it. And you're stuck inside it. You're in the burning building, whatever. And there are no exits. I tell you this, if you're not a Christian, you're the same as me, you're going to die. And there are no exits. And what... 
this is saying is there are exits. That God provides exits. Now, what does that mean? In Psalm 18, it talks about being brought out of death into a spacious place. What it's saying is this. God delivers us from all our enemies and particularly from the enemy of death, which is the the greatest enemy and last enemy. Um, We need to remember with all the problems and difficulties that we have that there is one who is greater than them all. Again, Calvin says this. This is a truth particularly worthy of our notice as teaching us to beware of judging by sense in the matter of divine deliverances. However deep we may have sunk in trouble, it becomes us to trust the power of God who claims it as his peculiar work to open up a way where man can see none. You see, the first verse we looked at tells us God daily bears our burdens. The second verse tells us that when we are in trouble and we cannot see any way out at all, we can't see the exit. The room is filled with smoke. There's no emergency exit for us. It tells us that because of who God is, we have to trust, even though we don't see it, that he is the, the Christ who saves from death. The Christ who carries his people, the Christ who saves from death. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And again, how often do we spend wasted hours being anxious, trying to work out a way for us to escape the trouble and the difficulty I'm in? Nobody sees the trouble I'm in. Nobody sees it. But the Lord sees And with the Lord, there are the exits from death. Verse 21 to 23. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. The Lord says, I will bring them from Bration. I will bring them from the depths of the the sea that your feet may wade in the blood of your foes while the tongues of your dogs have their share. Ah, We were just doing so well. It was all so nice. And now you're talking about bathing in blood. What's going on here? Well, It's God who crushes his enemies. Um, The hairy crown, by the way, some of us can speak of this not from experience, but the hairy crown is, the idea in that culture was um, that the more hair you had, the greater was your strength. And that's why men grew beards. I've just ordered a book, The History of the Beard. I know it's weird, but uh, honestly, you're going to be hearing about this because the book sounded absolutely fascinating. It's the history of the beard throughout the whole of the world. And uh, you'll be getting some illustrations, I'm sure. But here's one of them. And it's this, that that, um, if you had a full head of hair, you know, you had the ponytail, the full works, and a full beard, you know, like ZZ Top or something, you were just, yeah, you had the whole lot, then um, that was a sign of your strength, a sign of your power. And when it's being used here, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins, it's saying those who think that they're strong, but God will crush them. God will crush your enemies. This is not a particularly bloodthirsty thing. It's not glorying in violence. It's just simply saying you see this tremendous evil that faces you. You see this evil that seems to be winning. No, no. There's only one winner at the end of all of this. And it's God. God carries his people. God saves from death. God crushes his enemy. Verse 24. Your processional God has come into view. The procession of my God and king into the sanctuary. 
In front are the singers, after them the musicians. With them are the young women playing the tambourines. Praise God in the great congregation. Praise the Lord in the assembly of Israel. There is the little tribe of Benjamin leading them. There the great throng of Judah's princes. And there the princes of Zebulun and of Naphtali. This is the God who celebrates with his people. Two tribes from the north, two from the south. It's an idea including of all of God's people. And God rejoices with his people. I love in Zephaniah, we will eventually come to the passage where it says, God rejoices over you with singing. You know how a, a, a parent will rejoice over their child, they'll sing to their child, they'll, it's this image of God celebrating and rejoicing over his people. See how the image of, that we have of God is so important because we can have an image which thinks, well, yes, God is all powerful and God is all good and all the rest of it. But then we think, I'm just so rubbish and I'm so rotten and I'm so insignificant and I'm so useless and I'm so sinful. I'm just going to get into heaven just by the skin of my teeth if I get there at all. And there's an opposite picture that's given here where God rejoices over his people. Yes, though we are sinful. Yes, though we have done so many things that are wrong. But he's found a way to, to save us and to bring us to him. And he's, uh, it's a celebration. We talk about the communion. In the Anglican tradition, it's often spoken of as a Eucharist, a thanksgiving, a joyful feast, a joyful meal. And that's why you've got the tambourines here. You think of Miriam with Moses. Now, I have to confess, I have a problem with tambourines in worship because I just can't get my head around the little old lady in the Salvation Army going, Shh. or I've been to a couple of brethren services uh, one time and, and I just remember the tambourine it was so weird so you know I, I'm thinking okay the tambourine how does that work and if John Cooper there just wheels out a tambourine and starts banging on it what are we going to do um, I don't know but it's the images forget the particular instrument the image is of celebration and you know, there's a time when we bow our heads and we weep and we cry and we sing psalms of lament. And there are time, there's a time also when we dance before the Lord. There's a time when we raise our hands and we clap our hands. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. Christ celebrates with his people. When we're singing, what are we doing? I love the singing and the praise. It's, it's not like a peripheral to the sermon. It's a key part of what we are doing. Because yes, we sing prayers that are confession. Yes, we, we ask questions when we sing. But a huge part of what we're doing when, when we're singing is celebrating the goodness of God. And if this is not too much of an image for you, it's, we're celebrating with God. We're joining in the angels with the angels praising. So there's a response to all this. If that is who Christ is, if he carries his people, if he saves us from death, if he crushes our enemies, and if he celebrates with us, what's our response? Verse 28. Summon your power, God. Show us your strength, our God, as you've done before. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts. Rebuke the beast among the reeds, the herd of bulls among the casts of the nations. Humbled, May the beasts bring bars of silver, scatter the nations who delight in war. Envoys will come from Egypt. Cush will submit herself to God. 
Our response is twofold. This first part just simply says this. We pray. We pray for God's power and grace to be shown in the world. Summon your power, God. Show us your strength, our God, as you have done before. We come and we cry, Lord, I want to see. I want to see Jesus. I want to know. I want to experience your power. Not in the sense that so many Christian churches sometimes teach of, Lord, give me power like I can be zapped or I can zap people even more. I've got the power, zap. I've got the power, zap. I've got the power. That's not what it means. It means the power of God working within people's lives so that we see the beauty of Jesus, so that people are brought to him. The only thing that's going to work, I, I'm, I go to lots of things and hear lots of things, people talking and strategizing about communicating the gospel and how do we bring the gospel to Scotland, and all of it's very good, and except what bothers me about it is this, so much of it is talking about how to bring the gospel, and I'm just fed up of it. Well, let's, let's just get the gospel out. And may God work in power through his gospel. There's nothing reinforces your faith more than seeing somebody walking off the street or someone from your office or someone from your family who had nothing to do with God. And then God works in their life and they're praising him and serving him. It's just absolutely wonderful. That's what we need. We pray, summon your power. It's why we have prayer meetings. It's why we gather before the service here. It's why you should pray in your home. It's why you should pray when you meet together. Summon your power, O God. And he asks for the temple to be glorified. That that phrase, as we sung it, I'm sure some of you are going, what's this about the beast? What's this about amongst the reeds? It's a nickname for a crocodile, which in turn was a nickname for Egypt. And Egypt was traditionally Israel's enemy. And it's saying, God, defeat our enemies. But it's also saying, God, bring your people, not just from Judah, not just from the tribes of Israel, but from Cush. And for them, Cush, that was North Sudan, that was really, really far away. That's what the ends of the earth were. We live in Scotland, and most of us who are Scottish think this is the center of the universe. We talk about faraway lands. Those of you who are from Malaysia, oh, that's a long, long way away. And you're from Kuala Lumpur, and we're going, Dundee's a big city, and you're going, what? It's not even a suburb of KL. And, and you know, perspective and how we look at things. But God, there's this tremendous vision of God bringing people. The ends of the earth, there are no ends of the earth for God. You know, everywhere is where his, his people are. Isn't it wonderful that today there isn't a nation in the world where there will not be people worshiping Jesus? Nobody in the New Testament would have believed that from experience. How could they possibly imagine that? But that's what's happened and will happen. People will come from all over the world. God's people pray. And then verse 32. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord. To him who rides across the highest heavens, the ancient heavens, who thunders with mighty voice. Proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the heavens. You, God, are awesome in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. Prayer turns to praise. I love what Spurgeon says about this. He says, we have too much sinning against God, but cannot have too much singing to God. I sometimes think we don't praise properly because we don't pray properly. We think our own hands have provided this. We think of praise to God as something that we do, and we don't grasp or see 
who Jesus is. God is the God of Israel, the God of his people, the God of the whole world, the God whose power is in the heavens. Apparently, if you could count the known stars that we can see, at one a second, it would take you two and a half thousand years to count them all. It's extraordinary. The God whose power is in the heavens. And what the psalmist is doing is what happens in Christ, that there is this God of immense power and immense care, and it's the same God. And it's, you know, I think sometimes you get a God, Christians present a God who's of immense power, but he's so powerful, he's like the Islamic God. Can't come near you because he's too powerful. You can't go near him. And then I think there are Christians who present God as, oh, God, he really cares for you. He really feels your pain and so on. But he's so weak that it doesn't matter because he can't do anything about it. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God who is all-powerful and the God who is love. And that is just an astonishing thing. Let me finish by just going back to Ephesians 4 and verse 14. After we've been taught all this, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemes. By the way, the devil is having a field day in the Church of Scotland because even well-meaning Christians are standing up sometimes and teaching rubbish. And Christians are being blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. And people, oh, are you saying that you've got it right? No, I'm saying the Bible's got it right. Teach the Bible. Teach the word. Stick to the word. Stick to the word and you'll see. Then we'll no longer be infants. We'll, we won't be blown there. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Christ is the body. When we take communion, we are told not, Christ is the head rather, we are told not to take communion if we don't recognize the body. Now the body of Christ is what he gave for us, it's speaking about that, but it's also speaking about our brothers and sisters, our fellow Christians. And it's this extraordinary thing happening. As we take the bread and as we take the wine, we're being told, you're united. You're united in one body. And the Pope's not the head, and the bishops are not the head, and ministers are not the head. I'm not the head of this church. The elders are not the head. Christ is the head, and everything flows from the head. That's why we sing. Christ gave himself for us. He's given himself to us. We are in Christ. We belong to Christ. And this is the thing. The song we're going to sing in a moment talks about him, Jesus, paying it all. I know that there are some of you, and what you think is, do you know this? If I could just get this right, if I could just get this thing sorted out, if I could just do this, if I could just fix that relationship, then, then I'll be ready to follow Jesus and to love God and to serve God. And I'm sorry. 
you haven't got it. You haven't understood. You haven't grasped. You are not aware of what the gospel is. The gospel is there's nothing you can do. Nothing. You could work for a million years and you still couldn't earn your salvation. And that nothing you can do, by the way, also goes this direction. That there's nothing that you have done that can prevent you from coming to Christ. Oh, but you don't know how bad I am or what I've done. True, I don't know, I don't want to know, I don't need to know. But Christ does and he still invites you. Going back to Sinclair's book, he, see the, the argument in the Mara controversy was, was it right to invite all sinners to Jesus? And some people were saying no. And there was a kind of preparationism where you had to have enough repentance and you had to have enough. And um, the Marrow men argued that what you did was you invited everyone to Christ, that everyone had the right to Christ. And it was a very bold language. And honestly, you've got to read the book because Singler defends it really strongly and wonderfully. And he says, you know this? I'm paraphrasing now completely. This is my version of what Singler said about the Marrow men, so don't quote it. But, you know... You can go to the down and out that's lying in the gutter and you can say Christ is dead for you. And you can say you have as much right to Christ as I do. That's a wonderful thing. You can go to the person who's blasphemed and mocked. You can go to the Muslim. You can go to any human being and saying Christ is dead for you. Come to Christ. None of us have the right to go and say, well, that person, I think they make a good Christian. That one might not. That one's not quite there yet. That one's not quite there yet. We don't know. Only God alone knows people's hearts. But we are commanded. We don't just have the right, but we are commanded to go and call upon people everywhere to repent and to come and to receive Christ. So I would say to you when we take communion, please don't take communion if you have not come to Christ, if you are not in Christ. If you are, do take it. But if you are not in Christ, come to Christ. And if you don't, you're not even sure what that means, ask, find out. It is the most important thing in the world to be in Christ rather than out of Christ. And he invites all. I think that's the wonder of the whole scriptures. I think that's where Christ is in all of the scriptures. And I think that's where our hope is. Nothing else but Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the beauty of your salvation. Such grace, such love, such depth, such a cost, and now freely offered to us. Help us to accept it in your name. Amen. We're going to sing the song, Jesus Paid It All. Uh, As we sing that, perhaps someone could go and ask uh, the older children in Sunday school are going to come back. If you're up in the balcony and you'd like to take communion, then uh, there are seats downstairs for you, so please do, when we sing this, um, I love having an altar call in the free church, please do come down and find a seat in the main body because the communion and wine won't be going upstairs. So if you'd like to take communion, um, please do come and find a seat downstairs. There are uh, still a few here. Uh, Let's sing, uh, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Did someone go and tell the children? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. 
Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone Can change the leper's spot And melt the heart of stone Jesus paid it Now we read in 1 Corinthians uh, the warrant for the Lord's Supper from chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You are not proclaiming your righteousness and your goodness. You are proclaiming the Lord's death. And if your faith and trust is in the death of Christ, then you are invited to share at his table. It's his table, not ours. Um, If you are not a believer, then as I said, please do not take the bread and the wine because it would only do you harm. Um, You need to come to Christ first before you come to his table. But if you've come to him, then please share. um, I'll give thanks for both the bread and the wine. Then the elders will pass around the bread. Just take it and eat as it comes. And then uh, the same with the wine. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you paid it all that the ticket, the cost for us to sit at your table was so immense, we couldn't do it. But you have paid it, and you invite us to sit as those who are cleansed and healed, restored, forgiven. As we eat and share together, may we be conscious of your love, and may we be conscious of what you have done for us, and may we feed upon you, knowing that we are in Christ. In your name we ask it. Amen. The elders should come.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.